Today's case is a very unique one. A popular true crime podcast was involved in helping find answers in today's case in some ways. In 1982, people were found murdered in Texas. They went over 40 years without being identified. And when they were identified, the first question their family had was what happened to the baby. Alright, imagine it's December of 1980. You're a parent and you haven't heard from your son and his wife for a couple of months now. Then you get a phone call from someone who introduces themselves as Sister Susan. And she wants to meet up with you and give you your son's car. The meetup is in Florida at the Daytona International Speedway. But it's at night. And there are several other people with Sister Susan. The woman tells you that your son and his wife joined their religious group and that they were giving away their worldly possessions. She gives you the car and leaves. It's odd. It seems like straight out of a movie, but sometimes real life is crazier than anything that Hollywood can create. And for that, we have to rewind a little. Harold Dean Klaus Jr. was born on June 7, 1959, and Tina Lynn was born on September 21, 1963. They were from New Smyrna Beach, Florida, which is in Volusia County on the Atlantic Beach. Their families were already familiar with each other, with Dean's sister marrying Tina's brother. It was described that they had this whirlwind of a romance, and they ended up getting married at the county courthouse on June 25, 1979. At the time, she was 16 and he was 20. Then seven months later, on January 24, 1980, the couple welcomed a baby, Holly Marie Klaus. In the early 1980s, the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area was having a bit of a construction boom. Dean worked as a cabinet builder. He and Tina decided to take advantage of where the construction was happening, so in the summer of 1980, they packed up Dean's mother's maroon GMC Concorde, and they headed towards Texas. They made the move to Louisville, a suburb just outside of Dallas, and they originally moved in with Dean's cousin, but were quickly able to get their own place. Dean started working for D.R. Horton Home Builders, and while construction was booming there, times did get tough for Dean and Tina, as he couldn't find consistent work that he was expecting. But as tight as the financial situation may have been, everything still seemed to be great between Dean and Tina's relationship. From the time that they moved to Texas, they kept in contact with their family back in Florida with sending letters pretty regularly. Then towards the end of October that year, the letters stopped coming. In December 1980, Dean's mom, Donna, got that call from Sister Susan. Sister Susan said that they had Dean and Tina's car and they wanted to return it. They arranged for the meet at the darkened Daytona International Speedway, which was about an hour from where Donna was living. Donna was smart about this and didn't go alone. She also reached out and contacted the local cops to let them know about this strange meeting. 
At the time, she was concerned for Dean and Tina because she hadn't heard from them, but they weren't reported missing. This may have just been an extra layer of protection for her just in case anything bad happened at this meetup. So Sister Susan showed up with the car and a couple of other women, and they were all dressed in white robes. Sister Susan showed up with the car, and there were two other women with her. When I say this was something out of a movie, this Sister Susan lady, she was the only one talking. The others just sat quiet in the background, and they were all wearing white robes. She told Donna that Dean and Tina joined their religious group, and that they were getting rid of all of their worldly possessions, and that they would no longer have contact with their families. And then, like it was nothing, she asked Donna for a thousand dollar donation to their religious group. After this, Donna tried to report Dean and Tina missing to the police. Initially, she was turned away. Now, it seems there are two reasons why this report was first turned down. Dean had a little bit of a history with a religious group in Florida, which his parents referred to as, quote, Jesus freaks. This was before he started dating Tina. Then once he started dating her, he kind of drifted away from them. The other thing, though, no, I don't necessarily like it, but I see where they're coming from, and it makes a little bit of sense. The cop said that if the people returned the car, then it supported that Dean and Tina took off on their own to join the religious group. After all, why would someone be involved in some people's disappearance and then drive the car halfway across the country to return it to the person's mom? After a few months passed, police eventually took a missing persons report, but they still went with the theory that Dean and Tina left on their own. So this wasn't a huge investigation getting national attention, and I'm only assuming that the thought process here was that Dean and Tina would contact their families eventually on their own, or that they would have some run-in with law enforcement, the cops would check on them to confirm that they left on their own and everything was okay and everyone would go about their day. But none of that happened. On January 12, 1981, in Harris County, Texas, which is where Houston is at, Someone let their dog loose, wandering around a wooded area. The dog returned to the owner with a decomposing human arm. After the dog returned with the arm, this led to a search party being organized to search the woods. After several days of searching, they located a male and female deceased together. Their bodies were described as partially skeletonized and heavily decayed. Near the bodies was a bloody towel and a pair of gym shorts. Even with the advanced stages of decomposition, investigators were able to determine that the female had been strangled to death and the male had been tied up, gagged, and beaten to death. Based off of everything found at the scene, investigators didn't really have anything to go on. There wasn't much evidence, the gym shorts and the bloody towel, and there weren't any IDs or anything near the victim to say who they were. The only thing that they were able to determine, really, was that the victims were either teenagers or young adults. A forensic artist put together a drawing of facial reconstruction of both victims 
and they were released to the local media. This resulted in zero leads. At the time, investigators did not know that the victims were not from Texas, so they didn't have any connections or people that may recognize them in the area. But even where they were living in Texas at the time was still four hours away from where they were found. With no leads, no evidence, no identification on the victims, this case really did not go anywhere at all. The theory by investigators was that the female had been attacked first and the male was killed trying to defend her, but that was just a theory that they had. Years began to go by, and as technology advanced, new investigative methods came into play. In 2011, the bodies of the two victims were exhumed to get DNA samples. The first reason behind this was to compare it to each other to see if they were related. Investigators still had no idea whether they were brother and sisters, complete strangers, was this a dumping ground for a serial killer, or what was going on, who they may be to each other. The funding from this came from a grant with the National Institute of Justice, who at the time were funding multiple investigations like this to try and identify murder victims but they still had to try and identify exactly who the victims were. Then in 2020, a company in California called Identifinders International received a grant from one of the most, if not the most listened to true crime podcast networks, Audio Chuck, which produces Crime Junkies, Counterclock, and many more podcasts. The two genealogists with Identifiers International were Allison Peacock and Misty Gillis, and they were tasked with trying to ID the victims. Following the male's genetics, it led them to a family in Kentucky with the last name Klaus. They continued following this family line until they found a very close match to the male victim, to a family in Florida that had the surname Klaus. Now for me personally, making phone calls to strangers is not my favorite thing to do. So I can only imagine the feeling right before making this phone call. Allison and Misty identified a woman named Debbie Brooks. They called her and they explained who they were and asked if she had a family member who disappeared about 40 years ago. I also couldn't imagine being the person on the other end of this phone call. Everything around you stops, especially after Debbie told them that her brother Dean Klaus went missing 40 years ago. Debbie gave the two genealogists all the information that they needed. This led to the positive identification of Dean Klaus Jr. just 10 days after beginning their task. Then a few days later, they were able to positively identify the female as Tina Klaus. But during the phone call where Debbie learned that her brother and sister-in-law had been murdered, she had one question. What about the baby? Up until that point, no one knew that the two victims had a baby. So now the investigation had two things to focus on. Who killed them? And then, most importantly at the time was, what happened to Holly Klaus? The first thought was that maybe she was killed as well, but there were no signs of the baby or her body found anywhere near where Dean and Tina were. Local records were checked, and there were no unidentified babies who died around 
that time in that area either. Then, in steps Allison Peacock again, this time with her own organization called Family History Detectives. On her website, Allison wrote about this case, and she knew that the best bet to finding Holly would be to get as many eyes on this case as possible. Age progression photos were made, information was released to the public, and several family members submitted DNA to different genealogy databases. Like the investigation into who Dean and Tina were, this was not an overnight investigation. But with the continued determination of Allison's organization, the family, the public, the Texas Attorney General's cold case unit, and Volusia County Detective Steve Wheeler, Holly was located. She was living in Oklahoma, and she was found on June 7, 2022. She was 42 years old, and coincidentally, the day that she was found would have been Dean's 63rd birthday. A lot of information is being kept private about Holly's life out of respect for her privacy. Her adoptive parents were not suspects in this case and were completely ruled out as being involved. What is reported is that she did not remember Dean and Tina. She was only one years old when they were murdered. She has been married for 20 years, had five kids and two grandkids. What is known is that Holly was adopted as a baby. As a baby, Holly was turned over to a church in Arizona by two barefoot women wearing white robes who identified themselves as being part of a nomadic group. They also said that they had previously left a baby at a laundromat. What was known about the group in the area was that they were in the southwest of the United States. They believed in male and female separation they were vegetarians, and they walked around barefoot. While there were a lot of religious cults in the 70s and 80s, there was one that instantly came out to cult expert Joseph Sismart. And I probably said your name wrong. Sorry. When he heard the descriptions of the nomadic group at the Attorney General's press conference over the case in 2022, it was a cult that he had met multiple times in the early 80s that was known as Christ's Family. At the height of its existence, the cult had around 2,000 members. It was led by a man named Charles Franklin McHugh, who called himself Lightning Amen. And he also claimed to be Jesus Christ reincarnated. To fit the look of being Jesus, he wore a white robe and always walked around barefoot, which became the normal outfit of the group. They were also known to be vegetarians, they separated men and women in order to keep a pure, abstinent group. They operated around California, Arizona, and Texas, and their main place was in California, where Charles had his ranch. Another cult expert, Dr. Stephen Hassan, told the New York Post that no other cult matched this description. Charles preached that marijuana was medicine from God, but somehow he worked meth into that as well. He ended up being arrested on gun and drug charges. In 2001, Charles was also charged with molesting three children in Riverside County, California. He was found guilty on one of those cases and sentenced to 160 hours of community service. And I'll, I'll just let that sit for a minute. 
Charles ended up dying in 2010, and what was once a cult of 2,000 people is now registered as a religious nonprofit called Christ's Family Pure Righteousness with only a handful of members. The Daily Mail interviewed the members who said that they had no idea who Dean, Tina, or Holly were. With as large of a group as it was, it is quite possible that a few people did their own thing or they did it at the direction of Charles. So here's what's kind of theorized now. With Dean's history of being interested in religious groups, he came across this group in Texas. They wanted Dean and Tina to give up their baby to join, and ultimately there was some sort of physical altercation that led to Dean and Tina being murdered. This is still an ongoing investigation, and it's also going to bring us to a conclusion in this episode. Stay tuned after the outro music for the debrief and Thank you for listening. If you could, please leave a rating or review for the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. Any feedback is greatly appreciated, and I hope you all have a great day. For this week's debrief, we've all seen heist movies, whether it's the town tickers or six of the 30 Fast and Furious movies, the bank heist makes for a great movie. But in this case, it is everything that you don't want to do in a bank heist. I would compare it to if Billy Madison tried to rob a bank. In 2003, 61-year-old Homer Johnson went to the Union Bank in Caroline County, Virginia, He demanded money, he had a mask and a gun, but it seemed he forgot another important piece of equipment in a bank robbery, a bag. If there's a dark web version of YouTube instead of videos like 10 things you need to bring on your next road trip, their videos would be like 10 things you need for your next bank robbery. So there Homer is in the middle of robbing a bank, stuffing thousands of dollars in cash in his pockets. He ran out of the bank, leaving a trail of $100 bills flying out of his pocket as he goes. Then he reached his car, where he realized that he locked his keys in the car. And let's just add that to the dark web YouTube video checklist. Number one, make sure you have your keys to your car. He then tried to run on foot, but he was chased by two citizens, and right before they reached him, Homer pulled out the gun and tried to shoot them. But instead, he shot himself in the leg. One of the citizens then also shot Homer in the same leg. Homer was arrested. Then the sheriff revealed his criminal history. This was not the first bank that Homer robbed. In his early 20s, in 1963, Homer robbed a bank in Maryland, and he served almost 20 years for it. So, I hope you all have a better day than Homer did on that day in 2003.